So do you want to know the undying person in the hut? <laughs> the iron person in the hut? The person who's always there, the most precious person there is? The you, the unique person of you? How is it that that person is simultaneously no self and interconnected with all things, all things? How is it? Yesterday, our lovely Shuso talked about um, the story. I'm going to tell a couple of stories tonight, but the wonderful story that she told last night about the uh, world-honored one walking along with the congregation. Do you remember? World-honored one was walking along with the congregation, and what did the world-honored one do? Pointed to the ground and said, this would be a good place to build a sanctuary. And Indra, the emperor of the gods, uh, picked up a blade of grass, put it in the ground, and said, the sanctuary is built. The sanctuary is built. And Indra, you could say, we call these people emperors and kings and queens and goddesses and so on when they are that confident, when they're that much themselves. So then they get to be called an emperor. In a way, the world recognizes it, but in, in a way, it comes from within. You know you're an emperor or whatever term you want to use for it. You know, and they know. And then you too can play like that. He didn't, he wasn't following somebody else's instruction. That was the first time that it ever happened, that somebody picked up a blade of grass when the Buddha suggested building a sanctuary and used a blade of grass to build the sanctuary. That's the first time it's ever happened, and the only time. Isn't that amazing? Now it's just like, oh, ho-hum, another story. But it's <laughs> amazing also. So whenever the Buddha smiles or when the... Uh, People who are in these stories smile. It's a very significant event. So in Mahayana Buddhism, it's uh, smiles go along with uh, awakening. Isn't that nice? Doesn't say um, the Buddha frowned. <laughs> Buddha smiled. And there's another famous story also with um, grasses, except it was a flowering grass, so we call it a flower. Uh, when Buddha held up a flower in the assembly and twirled it, and Mahakashapa smiled, and then Buddha said, Mahakashapa has the true Dharma eye, the unsurpassable great Shobogenzo, true Dharma. So the smile is part of the meeting of people, of us. This poem that we just read is, I'm going to talk about it a little later, but it's, do you know why I picked it? It has grass in it. <laughs> Other things you can do with grass besides put them in the ground, but it refers to that story. All of these things intermingle and tell, tell about themselves. All of them are talking to themselves, even though they're hundreds of years apart. These stories are hundreds of years separated 
but they all know about each other and they're, they're all talking to us through these stories. In this story, since you have it, you can look at it. Um, in that third verse, it says, though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. In 10 square feet, an old man illumines forms and their nature. That's Vimalakirti. So this is about 700 years after the Vimalakirti Sutra was written. So this is written in China. And he's talking about Vimalakirti 700 years later, saying in a, in a way that's very loving, um, an old man illumines forms and their nature. Of course, we all know it's Vimalakirti, incredibly enlightened old person, but an old man manifesting as a sick person. And a great vehicle bodhisattva trusts without doubt. So that's Manjushri, the one he's talking to, trusting without doubt. The middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? So what do the not middling or lowly not wonder about? <laughs> they don't wonder about the not perishing, the beyond perishing and not perishing. So this is uh, our ancestor Sekito talking about Vimalakirti and showing how alive it was for him and allowing it to be alive for us still. Vimalakirti. In the chapters that uh, follow what Trisha talked about last night in her beautiful talk, there are some really uh, wonderful stories. But first, there is a little bit of a question and answer that I want to talk about, because this is part of what happened in the Mahayana in the big vehicle. Okay, Mahayana. Mahayana means great vehicle. Mahayana means everybody can get on. So Mahayana is different from the it, it likes to describe itself as different from earlier Buddhism, which people were interpreting as something only special people could do. Really hard to get on this um, vehicle. You have to renounce everything. You have to uh, get rid of all of your bad habits. And then you can maybe you can get a ride in this lift. We're not patronizing Uber, I think. So. <laughs> Maybe if you're really, really, really hard worker, you can get a ride. But the Mahayana came along and said, you can all come in. Everybody gets on this. And just like Vimala Kirti's room that Trisha talked about last night, it was 10 square feet, but somehow or other, a, few, a billion bodhisattvas came in and their, their thrones were, were really high. And that's what this is talking about. And that's what the Mahayana means all the thrones, which each one of you deserves, each one of you gets a throne, you get that throne, and it's just your size. Isn't that nice? And just your style. Vimalakirti would provide, Mahayana provides a, a throne just for you. Think about which one you would like. Think about your precious body and what it would like to sit on to be comfortable. And full lotus on a cushion, right? <laughs> Something really perfect for you so that you could relax, as it said at the very end. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. What are these hundreds of years we're letting go of? Hundreds of years of karma. 
that we're all subject to millions of years of karma. Let go, let go and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. Another image in, in Mahayana Buddhism is the um, open hand of the teacher. And we don't have that particular Buddha up there, but the Buddha is often like this and like this, bestowing fearlessness and meditative equipoise. So like this, not like this. Open the hands, walk innocent, innocently. There's something quite innocent about Vimalakirti too, although he's a devilishly tricky guy. So Manjushri, as Trisha talked about last night, is asking him about the nature of reality. And he says all the things people say, the uh, life and beings are like uh, foam, like foam of 10 minutes ago. It's gone now, like a bubble, like a dream. All of this is figment of our imagination. It's not really happening. And Manjushri, this person that Sekito extols as a high-level bodhisattva, says, but the Mahayana is about compassion and taking care of beings. How can I have any compassion for these beings that are like bubbles, that are like empty space, that are like dreams? How do I have good feeling about that? I have to read to you what Vimalakirti then said. He said, Manjushri, you have to generate love that is truly a refuge for all living beings. The love that is peaceful because free of grasping the love that is not feverish because free of passions, the love that accords with reality because it is equanimous in all three times, <clears throat> the love that is without conflict because free of the violence of the passions, the love that is non-dual because it is involved neither with the external nor with the internal, the love that is imperturbable because totally ultimate. Imperturbable love, that's what our Mahayana is about. Thereby, that bodhisattva generates the love that is firm, its high resolve, unbreakable. It's unbreakable because you see the reality of beings. You see how changeable and impermanent and uh, empty they are. He generates the love that is firm, its high resolve, unbreakable, like a diamond, the love that is pure, purified in its intrinsic nature the love that is even, its aspirations being equal. Can you imagine this in our world? This is, their world was equally problematic. Is that possible? <laughs> yes. The saint's love that has eliminated its enemy, selfishness. The bodhisattva's love that continuously develops living beings. The Tathagata's love that understands reality. The Buddha's love that causes living beings to awaken from their sleep. The love that is spontaneous because it is fully enlightened spontaneously. It goes on and on and on. Female Kirti really like to talk. <laughs> the love that is enlightenment because it is unity of experience. The love that has no presumption 
because it, because it has eliminated attachment and aversion. The love that is great compassion because it infuses the Mahayana with radiance. The love that is never exhausted because it acknowledges voidness and selflessness. This is, this is what uh, Mahayana love is like. So the ability, what they're saying is that we can actually see reality as it is and generate love. In fact, what they're saying is we can only generate real love if we see, see reality as it is, non-grasping, non-clinging, not trying to make it our way. The closer we get to understanding our own preciousness, the closer we are to being able to love all beings for who they really are. If we understand how precious we are and how we got to this place, then we can get a glimpse of how precious every being is. Manjushri goes on to ask a few more questions about compassion and equanimity and joy and so on. Those are all fun. But the next thing that happens after they finish their dialogue is that the goddess who lives in the house appears. So this is early, this is, you know, the year, this is more than 2,000 years old. And back then, um, in the early sutras, there are some kind of conflicted statements about women, as if they were problems for people who really wanted to wake up. And I'm glad that women are problems for people who really want to wake up. <laughs> but in this, uh, this, this goddess came and really caused problems for, uh, for our guy, for Manjushri. And she appeared and tested his understanding. She wanted to show that uh, what love was, and she also wanted to show who she was. So first she arrives, and she's lived in the house, she says, for 12 years. But 12 is one of those numbers that means, like, a long time. <laughs> 12 years. As long as Vimalakirti has been there, she has been there. So think about if we just called her God. We say goddess, and it has a little kind of, you have to be careful, because this is a powerful being. And so she arrives, and she causes flowers to fly, fall from the sky. This is another image that shows up in Mahayana Buddhism a lot. And I want to stop and appreciate that for a minute, because the images of flowers and grasses and walls and tiles and pebbles don't show up so much in early Buddhism, but they really show up in Chinese and Japanese Buddhism. There's something that happens that when we appreciate the... Um, our total interconnectedness with nature. Something happened in China and was maintained in Japan and hopefully will be maintained here that the value of our life is not separate from the value of walls, tiles, pebbles, plants, grasses. And maybe, I, I'm not sure, I was kind of thinking about it during Zazen. Don't tell the Eno. Or <laughs> I was thinking during Zazen about why that could be so without having the, it's not the occasion to do research, research into why that's so. But when Buddha was alive and circling around Northern India, teaching people, it was a beautiful place. It was lush and 
um, tropical and beautiful, surrounded by nature. So maybe they just didn't mention nature. But then when Buddhism flourished in China, then uh, things had to change. Buddha didn't work. They didn't have to appreciate. They, they weren't supposed to work. They're only supposed to beg. But in China, that didn't work. You, that wasn't acceptable. You had to take care of yourself and take care of things and till the earth and so on. So there's a different relationship to the natural world. I will, I will explore this more. But also, you know, the, the understanding of the feminine changed. So nature and flowers and goddesses appearing became more explicit. So this goddess arrives and causes a bunch of flowers to fall. And they, they miraculously don't stick on the uh, say, certain sages. They just fall right off, which is a good sign because you're not grasping. But on certain ones, like Manjushri, they stuck and they couldn't get it off. And they were trying to shake off these flowers that were sticking to them. So they wanted to know about this. So she explains that they were still manifesting attachment and so like that. But then Manjushri was very impressed with this goddess and said, you're, you're amazing. I, I highly value you. Why don't you appear in the body of a man? Because in early Buddhism, one of the teachings was you could, um, would take several lifetimes to achieve the highest states of liberation. And so you had to go through several, even as a woman, and then your last one, you could transform into a man and then you would achieve liberation. Yes, I, I also laugh about this. <laughs> so Manjushri boldly, 2000 years ago, asks her, you're so powerful. Why don't you transform into a man? And she says, why would that help you understand something if I did that? <laughs> and so she does, and she switches bodies with him. So then Manjushri finds himself in the body of a goddess, mm -hmm. and she's sitting there in the body of Manjushri and says, and she says, how does that feel? <laughs> I have the accoutrements of a woman. And he, she says, uh, she teaches him that these are empty, that this isn't what makes you who you are. These accoutrements that you now are manifesting don't make you who you are. How does that feel? Um, Manjushri has a really hard time understanding this. So she switches back into, she, get, she gives him his comfort zone back. That's our wonderful go goddess. She also teaches him about language and uh, um, compassion. Finally, she says, oh, Vimalakirti comes back into the room and says, uh, Reverend, this goddess has already served 92 million billion Buddhas. <coughs> she plays with the supernologists. She has truly, truly succeeded in all her vows. She has gained the tolerance of the emptiness of things. She has actually attained irreversibility. She can live wherever she wishes on the strength of her vow to develop living beings. Homage to that goddess who remains unnamed. Yeah, she doesn't need a name. She's beyond names. 
But this poem that I, I brought in, because it has to do with grasses, it has to do with the, the delicacy and the subtlety of grasses, which is what each of us is. We look out at a, a field of, of grasses and they all look the same, or some of them are sort of bent and some of them are sort of greener than others. They have some variety, but we, they just look like a field. That's what we are. That's what phenomenal reality is. It's like that. And it's each one is incredibly precious. So Ender, the king of gods, could take one of them, and that would be a sanctuary that would radiate through the universe. Each one of us, if plucked up and put to work, can be a sanctuary for the whole universe. It radiates out and interconnects. When Sekito wrote this poem, he, uh, he's a very important guy. Two days ago, I talked about one of the ancestors whose name we chant in the women's lineage, Liu Tiamo. Do you remember her iron grindstone, iron person? She's an iron person. So her name shows up in the lineage. And this guy, Sekito, shows up in our lineage also. He's a few centuries before Dogen's, well, he's about seven centuries before Dogen. He's after the sixth ancestor in China. Very important guy. His name means block of stone. Sometimes it's uh, translated as stone head, but in recent translations just say he lived on a stone cliff. It was really fun for a long time to think that his name was Stonehead. <laughs> Reb really liked to say that we're in this lineage of stone-headed people, but it really refers to the cliff where he built his, his modest grass hut. He, when he was a young boy, um, he lived in a time in China where uh, people believed in demons. We also should believe in demons, but he really, their villagers really believed in demons. And so they had to take very strong action to um, appease these demons. So they sacrificed animals and, uh, and wine. So it says in his life story that they would get together oxen and pour libations of wine and then sacrifice these oxen, which he found horrible. So even as a, as a, it says in this, his story that he had so much confidence that he would go and break up the altar and free the oxen. And he did this 10 times in a year. And it says the elders of the village could not stop him. So he's in our lineage. Then he decided to leave the village life and ordain and take up vows and study the way. So he found a great teacher. He went to the sixth ancestor. He was a great teacher in China and studied with him on South Mountain. After a while, this is also part of our school. After a while, his teacher passed away. And as he was dying, uh, he said, you should go. Uh, and he, he used this Chinese word, shu, S-S-U. You should go shoot. And he thought it meant you should go and think. So he went off and he spent a lot of time sitting and thinking, meditating. And his older brother, Dharma brother, came up to him and said, um, 
what are you doing sitting around and thinking? And he said, well, the master told me to go and shoe. And his older brother said, no, he didn't. He told you to go see Master Shoe. <laughs> this is also our school. <laughs> and so he immediately gathered his things and went off and studied with that ancestor and gradually uh, purified his practice. And what he, he's exceptionally noted for in our, in our lineage is for this deep understanding that um, there is no self, and yet, because there is no self, all things are yourself. And so, it turns right back around, and then all these things in the room and in your life are yourself. And if you can hold to that place, if you do, without grasping, that's where the iron resides, and it turns does iron, when it's turning, become a magnet? I never thought of that before. Of course, the inside, you would know this, the inside of our planet is iron rotating, and it creates a magnetic field, doesn't it? Mm. I have to ponder this. So the iron person can become magnetic, I'm making up my new kind of science here. <laughs> but there is something about that in the sense that the more you are you, and the more you accept you, the more room you have for other people. And then the more they want to be with you. And then iron people can bond together. This is how people invented science back in the day. It just sounds good, so it must be true. <laughs> but these stories for me are... Uh, I love them, and I, I, I really hope it's okay to hear stories about these old people, because the more you know about Sekito, and tomorrow we will chant his other poem that we recite, The Harmony of Difference and Equality, which is what he wrote right after he realized this feeling of no self connected to all selves. That was his expression after that great realization. And it also says in his story that when he had that realization, that all sages know there is no self, and therefore all things are the self. He struck his desk, funk, and then he wrote the poem of harmony and difference and equality. So homage to our ancestors and um, homage to these stories. And tomorrow, Trisha will tell us some more stories. And tomorrow also, in the middle of the day, right after yoga, we will have a rehearsal for the, of the ceremony, the Shuso ceremony. So you'll get a sense of what's going to happen. Okay. And I have another surprise for tomorrow, but I'll tell you tomorrow. <laughs> well, I can tell you, but we have to stand up. 